Politicians in New Zealand are under pressure to adopt a broad set of measures against binge drinking. The same is true in the United Kingdom, where the new government is already being criticised for taking too narrow an approach to dealing with the problem. In the second of this two-part Insight series, Radio New Zealand's health correspondent Karen Brown looks at what's being demanded of the UK government and what it's likely to deliver. I'm in Britain's third largest city, Leeds, which is transforming itself from a former sooty industrial town to a more vibrant and upmarket regional centre. But it's taking time and lateral thinking for ways to foster a lively culture while keeping people safe. What we do is we're hitting the bigger premises, the ones who give us more problems, we're hitting them harder, so they're going to have to foot probably about £120 a night. The top policeman in Leeds, Vernon Francis, is proudly unveiling a new initiative in that city designed to make problem pubs pay for the disorder they help create. He's just introduced a scheme under which licensees foot the bill for specially trained doormen to not only police the premises, but, more importantly, the street outside. Chief Inspector Francis calls them marshals. We appreciate that on some of the smaller premises... Their profit margins won't be able to cope with that, so we've agreed for them to join in with other smaller premises and between them they might fund one marshal. You asked how I've managed to do that, uh, with great difficulty. But with public nervousness at a high level in Britain's fastest-growing city over drunken brawling in city streets of a weekend, the police chief knows he has to sort it out. And with deep budget cuts threatened, he knows he won't have much cash in his kitty. I've got them to see that this is not just a policing problem. It's a whole community problem. And they are full square in the community, right in the centre of it when it comes to the nighttime economy. You know, we have something like 80,000 people now coming to Easter Centre um, on any one Friday or Saturday night. It's not good enough anymore for licensees to shut the door at 4 o'clock in the morning and just say what a cracking night we've had and what our, what our profits look like. That's not good enough anymore. And then leave those people to come onto the street and fight with the police or assault other people. In a more controversial stance, he says he'll go for supermarkets as well if he can establish a link between their sales of alcohol and violent crime. We can't necessarily con control that. We can't control what people are willing to drink in their own houses before they actually enter the city centre. What we can control is their behaviour while they're in it. What tends to happen is... Something would generally start inside a premise and trouble starts to brew. Well, our door staff and licensees are very good at spotting that and ejecting people onto the street. What we're not very good at is dealing with it once it's out on the street. And, you know, they generally eject them, they're very good at that, they throw them out onto the street, generally through the same door. Uh, so you've got both factions confronting each other and free to get on with it once they get out on the street. That's generally where the violent crime comes from because the door staff will generally stand back and watch this occur because they feel they've no power to intervene. Chief Inspector Francis says the marshals will be trained, wear police uniforms and work alongside police staff. Marshals exist in some other centres but not funded by the liquor industry. Because uh, we, we perhaps don't have sufficient police resources to be at the nub of all problems, the problem starts, somebody rings the police, and by the time the police get there, uh, a violent crime's been committed, which you know ends up with blood on the floor, somebody injured, potentially uh, near death. 
The inspector's scheme is one of many approaches being adopted in Britain to handle violence and mayhem caused by drink. In central London, the transport police are patrolling the underground on a sweltering Friday night, boosting their own visibility in order to reassure the public. I notice that everybody stares at you. It's, it's just part and parcel, but it shows that people are noticing that you're on here, so it's obviously working. Sergeant Tanya Moore says, in fact, serious problems on the tube are rare, but that's not the perception. The London Underground, believe it or not, is extremely safe in terms of crime levels. They are really low. However, the perception of crime is often on a higher, so we're trying to address that issue. People have told us, the public have told us, that they feel unsafe between the hours of 8 and 2. The closer it is to 2am, the more wary travellers are. People are generally looking a little bit worse. Just think as the night goes on, you can see the impact the alcohol is having on people. You know, it's not necessarily that they're misbehaving, but you can even see it in the way people are, are walking and holding themselves. And, and that's something we keep... I mean, the railway staff do a good job as well. They keep an eye on it. But we can't get into the stage where we ban everyone who's had a drink from travelling. But what we need to do is kind of use our judgement and think, right, well, who's safe and who isn't? Soon it won't be permitted to carry any open container of alcohol on the underground. It's also against the bylaws to be in an intoxicated state on trains. There's no lack in Britain of tools that officials, whether on the beat or in an office, can use against alcohol misuse. The weapons include antisocial behaviour orders, dispersal orders and designated public place orders. They come with heavy fines including imprisonment and they've been used. Adam Crawford is a law professor and head of criminal justice studies at Leeds University. A police officer in, in a dispersal zone can, can require, can direct people, those people to leave the designated zone, not return for 24 hours unless they live in that zone. And if a person returns to a zone or fails to follow the directions of a police officer, they are then committing an offence. So that becomes the offence. The offence is not to follow the directions of a police officer or to return to a dispersal zone. Professor Crawford says the powers were drawn up by the former Labour government as it grappled during its 13 years in power with the downsides of a developing nighttime economy. But he says the powers have been controversial because of the discretion given to the police and the infringements to rights that they entail. There have been other downsides as well, for example with dispersal zones where police may direct people to leave an area and not return. One of the things that the police often found difficult was once you designate an area as a dispersal zone, often, particularly if it was in residential areas, the community living in that area expected to see a police officer enforcing the order. Um, so in some senses, this was actually explicitly stated by some of the local elected representatives that we interviewed who actually saw a dispersal zone as a way of getting increased police presence into an area. So they saw it as a way of, in some senses, capturing a public resource into their area. The problem with that was what happens at the end of the six months. And one of the dangers was that having raised expectations of visible presence of police officers, then to withdraw them actually left often residents feeling worse off than they had before because they were scared and fearful 
example of what might happen at the end of the six-month period. Very often, the police and local authority hadn't really thought through any, any comprehensive exit strategy. He says the use of dispersal zones also moves the problem somewhere else. What often happened was it meant that the young people were moved beyond the boundaries of the dispersal zone, often into poorly lit, more vulnerable places, away from any limited adult surveillance or understanding of what was going on. So it was kind of pushing the problem kind of out of sight and out of mind to a certain degree, but actually potentially leaving the young people that were at the other end of it potentially more vulnerable. And, and it, did, it, it was often young people actually just doing what young people do, which is hanging around together, congregating, not doing too much harm, um, albeit maybe perceived as potentially um, antisocial. Adam Crawford says what dispersal and other orders did achieve was the opening up of a dialogue about the problem and how to solve it. He says police now largely keep such powers in their back pocket while trying other things. That's backed by the police, including Leeds Chief Vernon Francis. I think we've got sufficient powers to deal with the issues that pertain in the nighttime economy. What we do need is more people to assist us with, with those powers. That realisation's led to an explosion of innovative arrangements, including voluntary agreements and partnerships. The police now monitor pub licences with local authorities and licensees and call on charity groups to help with providing food, shelter and other support at large gatherings. Paul Dunn is an anti-social behaviour advisor for the police. In North Wales they have a yellow card scheme where people can be fined if they actually uh, vomit or urinate in areas, public areas, due to alcohol. And what they do is they give them a choice and they say to them, on the first occasion you can either be fined or you can actually clean it up. And of course everybody opts for the uh, cleaning it up. But there's a, a slight degree of humiliation there where they're seen by you know, other people out and about on the streets being sort of watched by groups of officials having to clean up the mess they caused. And I think that is absolutely a necessity. In another new measure, known as brief interventions, family doctors are being asked to screen every patient for alcohol issues by asking three or four key questions during regular consultations, which is all well and good and lobbyists will tell you Britain's become expert at managing binge drinking. What's needed now, they say, is action on the root causes. That's where the growing campaign for a minimum price of alcohol comes in. Professor Sir Ian Gilmore of the College of Physicians is a leader on this view. I think we've moved quite a long way in the UK in the last five years. I think five years ago it was very difficult to persuade anyone in government the fact that we have the cheapest alcohol in living memory had anything to do with it. Now I think all parties accept that price is a major driver of the problem we've got. Sergeant Paul Dunn. It's wrong to me that you can actually buy alcohol cheaper than sparkling water in some supermarkets and this is very much a concern of the government and the local authorities. Price undercutting by supermarkets is widespread and may be contributing to claims that five pubs are closing a day in Britain. Mike Heaton is the drummer in this Leeds band, Embrace. He's also a joint owner of a new pub in Leeds and passionate about the city's economic revival. I love Leeds. I've always loved Leeds. I liked Leeds when I was even at school. I love the energy. Amazing stores, uh, amazing people. It's a very friendly city, 
I mean, for a long time it's been known as the club capital of the north. The best thing about Leeds, I think, is the nightlife. Um, we've travelled all over the world pretty much now as a, as a band, but um, Leeds is still um, the best place for a Friday or a Saturday night. As a pub owner, I asked him how he was finding things. You know, in terms of business, it's never going to be as bleak for the ones that are doing well, <laughs> you know, but it, it, is, it is bleak, you know, and, the, you know, the, the, the supermarket side of things and the cheap alcohol is definitely a contributing factor to a lot of these places closing, but it's not the only factor. Alcohol researchers and lobby groups in Britain are urging the government to set a minimum cost of 50 pence, that's just over a dollar, a unit for alcohol. In the UK, a small glass of wine or half a pint of beer typically contain about a unit and a half of alcohol. Experts say setting a minimum price would cost moderate drinkers the equivalent of an extra $26 a year, while saving up to 50,000 people from illness over a decade. Liver specialist and doctor's spokesperson Sir Ian Gilmore. The problem with putting up the duty on alcohol, the tax, is that it, it would hit across the range of, of retailers whereas a minimum unit price would have no effect on the price of a pint of beer in a pub or a glass of wine in a restaurant. They're already well above the sort of minimum unit price levels that we would be thinking of. So it would selectively hit the heavy discounting, the loss leaders. The prime disadvantage of a minimum unit price is that the exchequer does not get his hands on the money. Britain's publicly funded alcohol concern group studied what setting a minimum price would do to the cost of alcohol at a major supermarket chain and found it would raise the price of lagers and almost all ciders as well as vodka, whiskey, gin and one brand of sherry. More expensive wines would fall in price and the cheaper ones rise. Alcohol Concern's chief executive is Don Schenker. The research evidence is, is quite clear. If you raise the price of the cheapest drinks in particular, then essentially uh, people who are particularly attracted to cheap, to cheap drinks, such as young people and heavy drinkers, uh, will drink a bit less. They won't completely stop drinking. We're not talking about necessarily dependent drinkers. We're talking about you know heavy drinkers, if you like, or binge drinkers, who will drop their consumption uh, or their purchase of alcohol because they won't be able to afford to buy it in the same way. In New Zealand, the Law Commission acknowledged recently the crucial role of price in moderating the demand, and therefore the harm, of alcohol. But it said it lacked the retail sales data to address the topic of a minimum price. Don Schenker says in Britain, the gathering of this potentially sensitive retail information was done at arm's length from the government by a marketing research firm. I'm outside the headquarters of the Portman Group in central London. I've come to see David Poley, who's the chief executive of the group. The Portman Group, which represents leading drinks producers, focuses on what it calls responsible marketing of alcohol. I asked Mr Poley if the fact alcohol is cheaper than water in some supermarkets means his group's failing. A lot of people are concerned about the price of alcoholic drinks, saying that uh, they're too cheap. Um, now, the thing about a self-regulatory code of practice is that we can't go near price. Um, any attempt to fix price would immediately be seized on by the competition authorities as being anti-competitive. It's also the case that actually drinks producers are not responsible for setting the price of their products. It's retailers who ultimately control that. But we feel at the Portman Group that the focus on price is probably misguided because, in the end, 
alcohol is actually more expensive in the UK than it is in virtually anywhere else in Europe and yet we still have particular problems here. We can't address those problems just through fixing the price. If someone is determined to get drunk or someone is drink dependent, they're going to get hold of that alcohol no matter what. What we really need to do is change the drinking culture and that's going to be a long-term effort that you can only achieve through sustained educational campaigns coupled with strong law enforcement against those people who get drunk and cause trouble. David Poley says consumption's moving in the right direction, with the proportion of men drinking more than 21 units a week in decline since 2000. That's disputed by Alcohol Concern, which says figures are confused by recalculations to allow for such things as larger drinking glasses. David Poley representing drinks producers. The one indicator that's going the wrong way is actually alcohol-related deaths. They have continued to go up despite the fact that overall consumption has been declining. And really what this shows is that there is a very hard core of misusers that we really need to get to. The industry has no wish to see its products misused. It's got no wish to see its products ending up causing people harm. The question is, what do you do about it? Now, there are some who will say that we, the way we need to tackle this problem is to get everyone in the country drinking less, bring down the per capita consumption, and by that way, we will bring down the level of alcohol problems. We would disagree with that and say, well, I don't necessarily need to drink any less. You don't necessarily need to drink any less. The people who need to drink less are the minority who are misusing alcohol, and they will not necessarily respond to such things as price changes or making alcohol more difficult to obtain. A Leeds-based researcher on alcohol, Philip Hadfield, says licensing law changes in the past five years have helped increase the availability of alcohol. He says the changes transferred oversight of local licences from magistrates to local government and removed fixed closing times, paving the way for 24-hour trading. Often a private student party will be fuelled by cheap alcohol bought maybe from a supermarket. And if those supermarkets are open 24 hours a day, then more alcohol can be purchased when the alcohol runs out. So, um, you know, licensing laws have really opened up that access to alcohol. Dr Hadfield says it's now hard for communities to turn down or fight licensing applications. It means that the licensing hours really of this city and, and others isn't determined really by the local, by the licensing authority, it's determined by market forces. Department of Health Regional Manager Matthew Andrews in London has worked in Britain and New Zealand on alcohol issues. He says New Zealand's doing better on licensing than the UK. In New Zealand the, the purpose of selling alcohol is much more clearly defined. A licensee must have a reasonably good reason to want a license. Whereas I am aware that in London there's one halal butcher shop which has a license to sell liquor. A new mandatory code, now being introduced, will ban pub crawls and promotions like the dentist's chair, where drinks are poured down consumers' throats. Don Schenker of Alcohol Concern. We are flooded as a society with positive images of drinking. We have some uh, social marketing from government or from other sources which talks about safe drinking or sensible drinking. 
and alerts people to, to the dangers of, of heavy drinking. But it's nothing in comparison to the levels of marketing and promotion. Around £800 million is the estimate for how much is, is, uh, is spent on alcohol marketing. We either need to see far more investment in sensible drinking messages and social marketing around sensible drinking, or we need to see some further caps on the level of alcohol marketing. But why do the experts think Britain has a culture of drinking to excess? Sir Ian Gilmore of the College of Physicians. There's no doubt looking back historically the UK has had a history of high intensity drinking and it's said that uh, 2,000 years ago the Roman soldiers who tippled on wine couldn't understand why the English serfs got absolutely drunk once a year at, at harvest time. And certainly if you look at Europe, there does seem to be a tendency as you go from south to north, you move out of a regular drinking in moderation culture into an intermittent binge drinking culture. That said, I think that stereotype is, is too easy and we live very much in a global world now and most of the products drunk around the world are global and Guinness is no longer just a drink in Ireland and Bacardi a drink in, you know, in, in a European country. So I think we are seeing and hearing from our colleagues in continental Europe that there are growing problems among their young people and the culture of going out to get drunk is no longer socially unacceptable. Chris Sorek of the Drink Aware Trust says their research has highlighted the role parents play as dealers, gaining access for their children to alcohol. Mr Sorek says teens should drink under supervision up to the age of 15 and with care until at least 18. He says it's important parents talk to their children about alcohol. You know that young people are going to try it anyway, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact of just talk, talk to them about alcohol. Let's don't, don't put it as being one of those taboo things. A lot of people say, well, we can talk about sex, we can talk about these other things. Don't forget to talk about alcohol too. I mean, it's, it's just another one of those things you need to have a conversation about. Between about 8 and about 13 years old, young people do listen to their parents. And because they're listening to their parents, they're watching their parents, they're seeing what their parents are doing, they'll listen to them and they will, they'll take that on board. However, parents have to also play as a role model as well. And that's one of the big ones that we have to talk about now because enough parents literally drink in front of their children to excess. Chris Sorek says parents in the United States, where he's from, are now held accountable. There are a number of cases in the United States where parents have been taken to court and have lost uh, for providing alcohol at parties at homes. And uh, there was one that I remember reading about that, that a young man left the house. He wasn't supposed to, but he did. He left the, the house and evidently either got into an accident or got into a car and drove someplace. And the parents of that young man uh, filed a lawsuit against the parents of the house for providing alcohol to underage and one of the parents went to jail. In New Zealand, the Justice Minister, Simon Power, says he'll make his decisions known next month on the far-reaching recommendations of the Law Commission report. Sir Ian Gilmore believes the UK may also be at a crucial stage in its long-running debate about alcohol and binge drinking. I think politicians have been very anxious about the propensity to lose votes by putting big tax increases on alcohol. But I think in terms of getting alcohol on the agenda as a public health problem, we've moved forward a long way. We've still got to turn that acceptance of its importance into tangible actions. But I think we're almost at a tipping point in the UK as far as improving the situation through legislation is concerned. I think we're beginning to move away from the nanny state arguments that used to come repeatedly if we talked about any, any uh, 
restriction on sales, any any restriction on advertising, any restriction on pricing. I think there's an acceptance now that as well as there being an element of individual responsibility, and there almost always must be that, but it, it has to also be backed up by, by legislation in order to put people in a situation where it's easier for them to make the, the healthy choices. A London-based think tank on health issues, known as the King's Fund, isn't confident that the new Lib Dem coalition government will be able to make the leap. Tammy Boyce is a researcher at the Fund. We had a Labour government in power for 13 years and they cozied up to industry and they did what industry wanted. And I fear that the new government that we have will do exactly the same thing. Um, we had an opportunity when we had a government that had a majority and who weren't traditionally as close to business as, as the Tories are. So I think we missed our chance, basically. We missed our chance to develop a robust and mature relationship with industry and we'll continue to be controlled by what industry says. Tammy Boyce, a Canadian, says it's encouraging to hear a debate in the UK on price and availability of alcohol, but she's not optimistic that change will come soon. Buying alcohol at your local corner store is something that this country needs to think about, and I've seen one or two mentions of it in different policies. It's not just price, it's about availability, it's about where you can buy it, it's about enforcing the laws that are there, that not letting young people drink, and it's about saying in pubs, okay, fine, you're completely drunk, we're not going to serve you. But, if you know, at the end of the day, if half of the people are drinking at home, price is going to have to change in order for those people who are drinking at home to have, to have an impact on them. Alcohol Concerns Don Schenker says the new government shouldn't target binge drinkers alone and would achieve more by trying to lower consumption across the board. Yes, we do have problems uh, in relation to teenagers, people in older adolescence, uh, people in young 20s, for example, early 20s, for example. But that's not the whole picture. We have seen a huge rise in the level of professional middle-class people drinking uh, wine at restaurants, taking home cheap wine from supermarkets, drinking at home, people finishing off a, a bottle of wine themselves in, in an evening and still working, still having normal family lives but simply consuming more alcohol than they realise might be damaging to them. And then later on down the line, realising they have problems with cardiovascular problems, uh, high blood pressure, diabetes and obesity. And that's one of the biggest costs to the National Health Service, the level of alcohol-related disease, if you like. So it's not just young drinkers that we need to worry about, it's the overall population. He says a broad approach would work best, despite the fact that 30% of drinkers are consuming 80% of alcohol. It's actually a smallish minority of people, around a third of drinkers, who are drinking the most alcohol. But these are the people that are keeping the drinks industry in business, if you like. So uh, it's actually been calculated that if everyone drank at sensible drinking levels, the drinks industry would lose around 40% of their profit. So you have to ask whether we're prepared as a country to, to sacrifice that level of profit for the drinks industry. I would argue that it's worthwhile doing that because it actually means much less harm to individuals and to society. But there are consequences here, and I think government has to look at what are the sort of whole population choices available to them in relation to tax and availability and licensing to try and deal with this problem and what sort of impact that would have. It's a discussion both governments in New Zealand and the United Kingdom are now deeply involved in. Many believe there's momentum for a toughening up. It's not clear yet how far it will go.
That insight was written and presented by our health correspondent, Karen Brown. It was produced by Sue Ingram. Technical production was by William Saunders.